0: We're in a unique time in the church calendar, it's known as the season of Lent, and years ago, as in like the early church, the first 100, 200 years of the church, the season marked from what we call Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday was marked as a time for reflection, but in particular, it was a marker of those who were to be baptized into the faith. And so it was a more time set aside for confession and renewal and transformation and growth. And so here's what I would encourage you in this season of Lent. May we think about what are the things that we need to confess or lay aside or entrust to God. And so, in fact, we've placed a cross in the foyer. That if there are things in your life you're carrying or burdens or there are weights that are pulling you down, uh, you can write there on just a little index card and place it on the cross as a reminder that you can leave that with God. It isn't something you have to carry Ever. But it's definitely something you don't have to carry alone. So we encourage you that. Uh, but I was thinking how, how this season, from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, marks a unique culture in the time of the church. Like I said, confession and renewal and reflection. And so uh, culture is one of those interesting things that maybe no matter where you're from, you think about culture at some level, like maybe in your workplace. But, but here's a couple helpful definitions of culture. Here's what Merriam-Webster defines culture as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features of everyday existence such as diversions or a way of life shared by people in a place or time. The set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterizes an institution or organization. So in other words, culture is something that happens everywhere. It happens in our homes. It has unique culture. Our workplaces, our schools, the church, countries, they all have their own unique cultures. Culture is neither good nor bad, right? Like it just is. Culture is is shaped by the people and the values of those people. Whether they are good or bad is different, but, but they all have culture. And so what's it mean for us to live in the world in which we live and to be shaped by various cultures? Because all of us have been shaped by different things. And so the question is, what does it look like for us to live as God's unique people in the world, right? Um, Culture is a buzzy world and business world, but it's also an important word when it comes to the life of the church. What is the culture of a place? And so I was thinking how... We want people to kind of live this out. And so years ago, I I served as a youth pastor, um, not nearly as well as Pastor Matt does, but but I did the job for a a few years, and and was thinking about what my goal was in youth ministry. And one of the goals was, like, you have to be really authentic, because if you're fake, they'll see through in about 30 seconds, because teenagers are not dumb. But also, I was thinking about how, um, man, I got a lot wrong. I could write a book on, like, things not to do. Um, Probably won't sell that book, but... But there's some things we think we got kind of right in the tenure of doing that. And here was one of them. We knew we had to create a unique culture. A place where students specifically felt welcomed and wanted and were a part. And they could come and they could ask questions. And they didn't have to look just like their parents, but they were welcome to be a part. And we would help shape them into people who followed Jesus. And so I'll never forget, we had this event every year. It was kind of a, uh, kind of a kickoff thing in the fall. where We'd partner with a few other churches and we'd go to a place that's kind of like Craig's Cruiser's um in the chicago suburbs and we would we would have all these churches go together and we would you know carpool there it's like 15 minutes from our church so we just kind of carpool there and give rides to students as they needed them and and um i remember we got there the event went fine um but seventh grade is the first year you could go to youth ministry so it was like a really cool right like you got to go to something finally and so the seventh graders would come, and I will never forget the moment, at the end of the event, we kind of checked off the list. All the kids were going back with parents or riding back with us or whatever it looked like. All the kids had been accounted for. We're getting rid of cars to leave, and we didn't care kind of which car you rode in. Didn't matter. Um, but I get in a car, and it was down to me and a senior named Ben who was sitting in the passenger seat, and then in the back were five seventh grade girls. Now, they didn't all ride with me there, but they were all riding back. I didn't think anything about it. I didn't really care we start taking off and all of a sudden I hear them kind of giggling and laughing in the back and I hear one of them say, yeah, we ditched her in the other car and they thought Ben and I were going to laugh at that and say that was awesome. Instead, before I could even speak, Ben spoke up and he goes, hey, um, that's not really cool actually. In fact, that's not what we do here. Right? We take care of one another, we don't leave people behind, that's just not what defines who we are, like, that's not what we do in this youth group. But the awesome thing for me was, I didn't say a word, and he said everything I hoped to would said. Who do you think had more influence in that moment? The cool senior from the high school who was a leader at school and at youth group, or me? The answer's him, by the way. He had way more influence in that moment, and I didn't have to say a word. And guess what? I guarantee those girls might even remember that moment today. Why? Because it was a unique culture and environment. And certain values are placed in these places. And so what Ben did was he goes, hey, no, that is not the culture of this place. He had bought into a unique culture because all of us have bought into a unique way of living. Whether it's working for us is a different conversation, but we've at least bought into it enough to do it. That is what culture is. And so the question for you and I is the culture you and I are living into, is it the culture of the world around us or is it the culture of the kingdom of God? That's the question we have to wrestle with, the culture of Jesus or the broader culture that we find ourselves living in all around. And John in his gospel, what he does so well is he paints these contrasting pictures over and over again so that you and I can come to the place of maybe having an idea of what the kingdom of God might look like lived out through the words and the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so today we'll be looking at John chapter 18, right? And I want to just a couple of you know that we're going through the, the gospel of John this year and um, you're going, wait, last week we stopped at verse 15 in chapter 3, and now you just jumped all the way to chapter 18. Yes, I did. And here's why. It'd be really weird to get to Easter Sunday and be in like chapter 6 and not talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So we will go back to chapter 3 in about 7 or 8 weeks, give or take, and then we'll be back where we we were, and then we'll kind of continue from there. So if you're like kind of a person who goes in order, I'm sorry, the order is broken for like 7, 8 weeks, and then we'll be back after that. But here's what John writes, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied. "'I am he,' Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When when Jesus said, "'I am he,' they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, "'Who is it you want?' Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon, Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter, Simon Peter, and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I was taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. At that moment, a rooster began to grow. It's probably fitting that this text begins with an important line that we sometimes probably overlook. It says, when he had finished praying, in other words, when Jesus had finished praying, so right before will be the most stressful, most pressure-filled, most difficult moment of his life. He spends time in prayer. Right? I don't oversimplify things of faith in any way, shape, or form, but what I'll say this. We begin to recognize in this singular moment what's so powerful when we live in right relationship with God. We're connected to God through prayer and this constant kind of communion. We live in the power of that relationship. It makes everything that we experience in life stay in its proper perspective. And so we see Judas leads this detachment of soldiers, this group of people, to Jesus, who's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's just a couple pictures that might be helpful for you. Uh, this first one is a picture of the place in which it's believed that Jesus prayed. Uh, you can go pray there today. It's inside what is called the Church of Gethsemane. And you can go check it out today. Um, but here is the garden outside that would look something like this this is an olive tree. And this is on the Mount of Olives, right outside Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here's another picture of, of what it looks like today. But if you want to do some like, imagining with me for a moment, you can see how kind of crowded it would be with all these trees. And this is just a small area, and so it would have been much larger than this. And so if you keep this in perspective, Jesus and his followers were there praying. And it said, a large detachment, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, large detachment. A large group of people come into this garden. Um, here's what that would actually have meant. A detachment of soldiers, uh, if you were to go... Trace it back all the way through the Greek, it was about 600 people. And so the reality is they probably didn't send a full 600, but they sent a good portion of them, and here's why. This is during the time of Passover. Jerusalem would have been overflowing with people. Rome did not want any kind of unrest. And so if they're going to arrest someone who already has followers, and we know it, right? even if he's with just his 12, we're going to send enough people to overwhelm them so that nothing will happen and we can control the situation. Right? It's, what, it's no different than what happens today when police are involved in large events and scared of what could be a reality. And so Jesus there is praying with his disciples and he's talking with them. And here comes all those who walk into the garden. And we see this kind of moment that we may miss in the, in the beginning by just a glancing at it. Maybe you remember the story of Adam in Genesis, the story in which he walks in the garden in the cool of the day with God. But then there's this moment where Adam sins, and then God comes to look for Adam, and Adam runs and hides. What John does so often throughout there is he connects stories from the Old Testament with stories of Jesus, and this is what he's doing in this moment. He's going, you remember the old Adam? He ran and hid. The new Adam, Jesus, he doesn't run and hide. In fact, he steps forward instead of stepping back. He steps forward and greets those who are coming, and he asks them a question. Rather than running from them to listen to the question, he steps forward and says this, Who is it you are looking for? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I'm him. I'm he. And maybe you're going this, I am. Or maybe you're like, oh, yeah, was there another story in the book of Genesis where, where this guy named Moses was talking to God, and they asked for his name, and he said, I am Again, John's contrasting these stories from both old and new and bringing them light to us to have some kind of picture of what's happening on here. And they fall back in response to Jesus' answer. And so, again, he asks him this question, who is it you want? And they go, Jesus of Nazareth. And so he says, again, I'm him. But I tell you what. Leave the rest of these people here, and you can have me, and I'll go with you. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is pretty powerful for us even to think about. Not only is he looking out for those who are with him, but he recognizes in this moment, what we sometimes miss, is anytime there's a mob of any kind, the mob is almost always wrong. Mobs are wrong. It's what they do, because you, any kind of mob mentality? And you're like, well, yeah, not not me. Man, you get wrapped up in something or some event. People respond in ways that are out of character because you're wrapped up in it. And you become a mob of some kind. And this is what happens in this moment. Jesus knows this, and he knows the character of mobs. He's like, ah, nope, we're not going to live that out here. And so he says, "Let let me just come with you. But before Jesus can leave with them, Peter grabs a sword, and he cuts off a guy's ear. Right. I, I spoke this week. I was subbing in for a guy for Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Fruitport Middle School, and so I was there talking to him. And I thought I didn't know what I was doing until the night before. And I thought, well, what am I going to talk about? And I thought, well, I'll just use part of the sermon. I'll connect it down and make a little short thing and just do that. And so I said this story. I was like, yeah. And the guy cut off his ear. And they're like, why did they cut off his ear? And I said, like, well, great question. And I wasn't going to share this with you guys because I figured you might even guess. And I was like, well, the truth is, probably was trying to cut off his head, but he missed. And they're like, that's kind of embarrassing. And I was like, well. There's a lot of adrenaline, and there's like 600 people. So he wasn't a swordsman either. He was a fisherman. Uh, so not all that surprising. It's not like the guy just stood there and said, hey, please cut my head off, right? Like, uh, probably not what happened. And so Peter is impetuous, and he grabs the sword, and he's going he's gonna, he's gonna to fight for Jesus, and he's going to make things right, and Jesus stops him. In fact, Luke records in his gospel, Jesus healed the man and says, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. We see in this moment, what so often we missed is that Peter thinks he's doing the work of God, but what God says through Jesus, no, 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 no. There's a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. In fact, I love what one commentator said in this text. He said, violence only cuts off the ears, physically and spiritually, of Jesus' opponents. Violence has never served Jesus' person or cause. So I want to note a couple things as we kind of continue here. Um, The values of the kingdoms of the world and the values of the kingdom of God are in contrast with one another more often than not. Rarely do they line up together because the kingdom of God looks so radically different than the kingdoms of the world. What we see in Jesus is this embodied in so many different ways. It's, they have different values and different cultures, right? Because in in Jesus' kingdom, light and life overcome death and darkness. You don't use the one to overthrow the other. Light and life overcome death and darkness. And what we begin to see is this. There are wars being waged in the world between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And I, when I say world here, by the way, I don't mean like everything in the world. That's like a bad example. I mean, the ways in which people live in the world. Not that the world itself is bad. In fact, God created it and said it's good. God created people and said they're good. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about cultures that exist in the world around us. And we don't always know what to do with that. We're not sure how to respond. In fact, what I find is I have more sympathy for characters in this story the more I read it than I probably used to. And here's why. We'll use Judas as the first example. Judas has been following after Jesus for three years. Right? We know his story. We know that he accepted the gold to betray Jesus. We know he, he would occasionally take a little extra out of the purse that the group had because he wanted to spend some money himself. Right? We know that's the story of Judas, and that's all true. But what people have argued for, for centuries now, actually, is that maybe just maybe Judas, like, he was known as a zealot, like he was fanatical, that he wanted to raise up Israel to be the kingdom that had been during the time of David, right? this, this kind of powerhouse kingdom. he wanted to bring that about. That's why he's called a zealot. And so maybe, just maybe, if Jesus is who they thought he was, he really is the Messiah, the one to come save them. Maybe he'll save them like every other kingdom that's ever come. Maybe he just needs to be spurred to action. So if I have him arrested, maybe then he'll function the way we think all the kingdoms of the world function. And his kingdom will come, just like all the rest. He'll throw out the Romans. He'll overthrow the corrupt Jewish leaders. And the kingdom will be the way it's meant to be again. problem is for Judas is that's not how God works. And you think, well, maybe Peter, maybe Peter has a better understanding, right? We see the initial thing he does, like by every worldly standard, what he does is incredibly courageous in the moment, right? He takes a sword, he cuts off a guy, we're gonna fight our way through 600 people with one sword. Bad idea. I would argue maybe not courageous, maybe dumb would be a better way to say that. And again, Jesus goes, that's not the way of the kingdom of God. Live by the sword, you die by the sword. And so we see in this moment, Peter responds in this way. But what we also see is as the story progresses, as he feels more pressure, he's asked, are you one of his followers? Oh, no, not me. What's Peter doing? Chickens out. Right? He's asked Point Blake. And three times he denies that he's a follower of Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times he says, I don't know the guy. Wait, you just spent the last three years of your life following this guy around everywhere, and then when you're confronted with the question, do you follow him? Like, you're scared of what may happen? Like, you might be arrested too, or are you just going to say, I I didn't know the guy. But maybe, maybe the reason Peter's struggling so much is because everything he thought he knew is crumbling around him. Maybe he thought he had picked the winning side when he picked Jesus. The problem Winning in the way of the kingdom of God is not winning in the way of the world. And so Peter, this is like messing up his mind. I don't know what to do because I thought for sure I knew how this was going to happen. And it's not happening the way I thought it would. Right? He's like, I, I wanted to pick the winner. All right, here's a complete side note of a good friend of mine. He is um, he's a big sports fan, but he is the epitome of a bandwagon fan. Like, you know, like if the team's winning, that's who he roots for. Like Here's what I mean, when we were, when we were growing up, um, he was a Butler fan for a number of years because they made that run of Final Fours, Butler t-shirts. Before that, he was an Indiana fan because they had the run of where they're really good in like the late 80s, 90s, Indiana. Purdue had a run there, Purdue fan. Colts are winning, wearing a Colts shirt. Pacers are winning, wearing a Pacers shirt. And then we noticed he started wearing random schools outside the state of Indiana. And we're like, dude, what in the world? I asked him a few years ago, I was like, why do you do this? Like, you're not a fan of anybody. He goes, I'm a fan of Winner's. And he goes, why would you waste time rooting for losers? At one level, I can't disagree with him. But again, that's probably why Peter struggled in this moment, because he didn't want to waste his time rooting for losers either. He only wanted to be on the winning side. The problem the ways of the world are not the ways of the kingdom of God. And so he doesn't know what to do, because Jesus is responding in ways that are different than he thought Jesus would respond. And then we see Jesus. Jesus responds differently than everybody else. He steps in the gap to make sure his followers aren't arrested. He doesn't fight his captors, even though he knows he has done nothing wrong. He doesn't yell at or call names or mock the high priests. No, Jesus lives out the message that he has been preaching and teaching and embodying his whole life. In fact, he confronts his antagonist with questions. In fact, what he does is like, hey, um, what did I do? I publicly preached in the synagogue and the temple, places of worship where anybody could go listen and hear. I didn't hide anything. And in fact, wh- why are we doing this at night? Because if this trial was for real, we'd be doing this during the daytime, not at night. You do so at night to try to hide it so that people don't see it. Not, you should be doing this during the day. You know this. He responds asking those kind of questions because Jesus embodies the message that he's continued to share. He models the way of the kingdom in the midst of the ways of the world. This is what begins to separate the kingdom of God from the kingdom of the world. This is what causes us to have to reimagine. This is what Peter and Judas struggled with. In fact, Judas never was able to reimagine the kingdom of God in the way it should be. In fact, he took his own life. But Peter begins to reimagine over time what the kingdom of God might actually look like, what Jesus was actually inviting you and I into. Because what we see in these moments is for Peter and Jesus, when the pressure of life comes, when we feel overwhelmed, when something that we thought was going how we wanted, when, when the worst thing we experience happens, when we are stressed out, who we are comes out. So Jesus looked out for others. Peter was violent and scared. Jesus denied nothing. Peter denied everything. What Judas and Peter and Jesus all model is the same thing. When the challenges of life come, and they will come, who we are becomes most evident. When the challenges of life come, who we are becomes most evident. So when you are stressed out, when things are not going how you want, when you're exhausted, when you're facing difficulty and you're feeling pressure, who we are on the inside does come out. The question then becomes, who are we on the inside? Right? If, it's, if fear or anger or stress has us gripped, or anxiety has us gripped in its stronghold in ways that we can't find life, guess what happens when we're stressed out or worn out or tired? It overflows in ways like Peter, not like Jesus. And none of those things lead us to life. In fact, they wrap us and they strangle us and become weights that we carry. They're like like we jump into a lake with chains on ourselves and trying to swim to the top, knowing the weight is too heavy, we're never going to get to the top. That's what happens when the inside doesn't match the outside. We can fake it for a little while, but in the end, we can't fake it when things get tough. So Jesus models for us what it looks like to live into his kingdom, even in the kingdoms of the world. Here's what we find. We find this, that he calls us to forgiveness over retaliation, love over hate, peace over violence, sacrifice and surrender over self preservation. Not values of the world, by the way. In fact, maybe you're going, man, like, ah, what does Jesus actually call us to? What is the way of life he calls us to live into? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's known as the central teaching of Jesus. Let's read you some excerpts from it and we can begin to think about them. Just imagine that not only has Jesus taught this, but he is now living this out as he's being arrested, as his disciples want to fight their way through. He ultimately leads him to the cross and he embraces this all the way through death because he knows in the kingdom of God, what looks like certain death may be the very place in which we find life. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. You shall not murder. He's like, yeah, you, we am like, cool, I won't do that. But I say you shall not be angry. Ooh, I don't like that one as much. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, don't have sex outside of marriage. Got it. Um, but I say you shall not lust. Ooh, that's harder. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. In other words, you can get even. You can take equal measure in retribution. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Say what? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you might be children of your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, not if. When you pray, not if, and you pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, God, I want to live as if your kingdom is here and now, the kingdom of your culture, not the culture of the world. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, not if, but when. Do not store up for yourselves treasures. Why? Because you can love God or money. Not both. Do not worry. I like that one a lot. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. He uses this kind of weird analogy about like, Somebody's got a little speck of dust in their eye, and you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. It's a weird analogy on purpose to make you think about it. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Not don't do what you don't want done to you, but do to others what you wish people would do for you. This is the teaching, the central teaching of Jesus. In fact, it ends with this little... A kind of picture of, like, that if you'll do these things and put them into practice, you're like a wise man who built his house on the rock, not a foolish man who built his house on sand. And he's talking about these things. If you put them into practice, if you live them out, if you embrace them, if you embody them, it's the central teaching of Jesus. Not only did he teach it, but he lived it. And he calls you and I to the same. All right, this is where we begin to see the culture of the kingdom of God cannot use the ways of the culture of the world Or else it loses its Christ likeness. It's what makes Christ unique. In fact, I came across this quote this week, and so I'm just going to share it with you. At the heart of Christianity is a powerful ethic, it is what the first followers of Jesus called the way a way of living based on love and compassion, reconciliation and forgiveness. Inclusion and acceptance, peace and nonviolence, generosity and justice. This ethic is what makes Christianity good. Without it, Christians can become rigid and tolerant, self-righteous and condemning, hate-filled and violent, selfish and unjust. In other words, without the ethic of Jesus, Christians can represent the worst humanity has to offer something unique about Christ's likeness that caused us to live into his kingdom and not the kingdoms of the world. Take like the values of his culture and not the values of the culture at large. I'm gonna bring you back to the question Jesus asked those who came to him in the garden. He said, who is it you want? Who is it you want? Said differently, what are you searching for? That question might be more for you and I to think about. Who is it we're looking for? What is it we want? If you and I want to know the life that leads to life, then we're called to follow Jesus. If we want to be the kind of people that when we feel pressure or stressed or overwhelmed, or the world is crumbling around us, but we want to still respond with love, we're going to probably have to follow Jesus. Jesus reminds us there's a way to live and love that doesn't look like the way's of the world around us. In fact, I think this might be helpful for us. We don't overcome the ways of the world with the ways of the world, but we overcome the ways of the world by the ways of Jesus. We don't overcome the ways of the world with the ways of the world, but we overcome the ways of the world with the ways of Jesus. That's one of the crazy things about Peter Peter had bought into a system that made sense to him and he lived into that system all the way through the crucifixion of Jesus. You can read the scene, we'll read it later, where Jesus gathers with his disciples after his resurrection and he says to Peter three different times, do you love me? And Peter responds three different times, yes, as response to this moment where he denied him. Peter, the one who who didn't get it right all the time. And even later on, we see moments where he might not have got it right all the time. What we well, is he becomes the one who becomes the foundation of the church in so many ways. And in fact, he's eventually arrested. And the story goes that he was asked to deny Jesus. And again, he would not do it this time. He would not deny him again so he's going to be crucified just like Jesus, but he said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified like my Savior, so crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy of what he did. And so the one who denies and tries to run away becomes the one who steps forward and embraces his faith because he wants to model what it looks like to embrace the way of the kingdom of God. The culture of the kingdom of God is radically different than the culture of the world in which we live. And it probably takes a radical reimagining in our minds of what it looks like to live as God's unique people how do we do that? How do we live into that way? Maybe the same way that Jesus did. How did he begin? With prayer. He spent time with God. He spent time in conversation with his father. He came to know him deeper and deeper at ways. Right? How do we do that in our day? We, we pray, we embrace spiritual practices or disciplines. Right? We, we spend time in prayer, we do fasts. We spend time in corporate worship, which is what we're doing right now. We do this in groups together, right? This is what it looks like to become the unique people of God. And by participating in these things over and over again, day in and day out, we can become transformed. God's Spirit can begin to do a work in us and we can be changed so that whenever we feel a weight or a stress or something keeping us from the peace of Christ when the inside overflows out, will look and sound and act like Jesus. But here's the problem for you and I. We would love for all this stuff to be easy, right? But the truth is, what we find over time is that there are things, like I mentioned earlier, that sometimes it feels like you have some chains on you in some way, shape, or form. Maybe they've got dumbbells on the bottom of them and they're just heavy and you're in a pond and you cannot swim to the surface no matter how much you try and you cannot take the chains off yourself. It just feels weighty and heavy, and it's pulling you down, and you know it's robbing you of the peace that you can come to know in Christ. That No matter what you experience, you can have, as Paul writes, the peace that surpasses all understanding. But you know there are things that are hindering that from you in your life. You just can't seem to let go of them. You know they're there, and some of them you can name, and some of them you maybe can't even name. Maybe it's a level of stress or anxiety. Maybe it's things in your life you've never fully surrendered to God and said they're His. You keep Holding them on to yourself, right? Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's our wallet. Maybe it's our work. I, I don't know what it is. We all have something that we have a tendency to hold on to too tightly and never surrender to Him. And it becomes a weight around us. And that weight distracts us down and drags us down and drags us down. But sometimes, when we really trust that He wants to do a work in and through us, when we say yes to Him, when we surrender these things, He helps us to take those chains off. What we find is we can finally find breath again. We can climb to the surface. We can breathe clean and fresh air. And we can find a peace that comes when knowing you felt overwhelmed, but now you have been set free from what has overwhelmed you. We see that no matter what happens in our lives, see the reality for all of us is when we are stressed or worn out or pressured, who we are on the inside is gonna come out. And the question for us, is it going to look like Jesus or is it going to look like Peter or Judas? Not the good Peter, the one who screwed up in the garden. Which one are we going to be? And so this morning we're going to do something we don't always do, but but I'm going to pray in just a moment. But we're going to leave the altars open and we're just going to have some music playing softly behind. And if you feel like you just want to step forward and say, God, I just want want to meet with you. I want to surrender these things or there's a weight that I feel like in my life. I just want to let it go. Or I just want to say, hey, God, I know you've been doing this work in my life, and so I wanted to just take a step towards you and just say thank you. I want to create space in my life and in my heart for you, and I, and I know that, that, man, there's some things I've been holding on to tightly, so I'm just going to let them go. Maybe there's a burden you're carrying for yourself or even for someone else, and you just want to surrender it. Maybe it's just a weight of work or your family or whatever it might be, but it feels like it's something heavy in your life. And so as I pray and as they play, we'll just allow for some quiet time and some time at the altar if you want to come and kneel and pray. There's nothing uniquely special about pieces of wood, but we do think there's something unique about stepping forward in faith to say, God, I I want you to meet me here. And so if you come to my left, your right, um, everyone will leave you alone. If you come to my right, your left, someone will probably come and pray with you. But this morning, if there's just a burden you're carrying and you want to leave it at the altar and trust just like we can leave it at the cross and trust that Christ is enough for that. And so too today, you can leave it here and know that you don't have to walk out here with it today. Father, we thank you for the way you love us and for the way that you come near. For the way you invite us to be your unique people so radically transformed by your goodness and by your grace and by your mercy. Father, this morning, if there's a weight we are carrying, would we just be willing to leave it at the altar? Just to trust that you're enough. You desire to transform us so that when we have the weighty or the heavy moments of life, when we feel pressure from the world all around us, we know we can live as your unique people in the world because you have done a work in and through us. So Father, help us in our time of prayer that like your son, we may be able to face whatever life throws at us because we have finished time in prayer with you. Help us in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name.